Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Hi everyone and welcome back to VLGA Connect. It's great to have you with us for the weekly governance update. I'm sure you've missed us. I'm sure you've missed Stephen Cooper, the Chief of Staff at the VLGA, who's joining us. Hi, Steve. Hi, Chris. I'm sure people have been um, concentrating on other things that might have happened around the nation rather than us. But anyway. Like what? What else has been happening, Stephen? It's been a very big week, Chris. Well, it has. And I know you've got a few things you want to get off your chest now that the federal election is over. The campaign is finished. We certainly talked about a few issues that arose during the the course of the campaign. Uh, What's your wash up uh, look like and sound like? Chris, you know, we try not to be political and we've probably bitten our collective tongues over the last little while. But I had been musing about the rather excellent piece that Ali Wastey wrote in the Herald Sun about three weeks ago, I suppose. Yes, uh, Ali, the CEO at Bass Coast, did uh, put out an opinion piece, which a lot of people uh, read and have talked about, really calling into question this whole uh, pork barrelling competition that occurs for funding pledges between parties, candidates, etc. And I think, uh, to paraphrase, saying there's got to be a better way and a more... um, uh, equitable way of dealing with that. Yeah, I think so, Chris. I think for local government, it's the thing that's probably been bugging me a bit is this kind of framing that goes on that whilst we know that for local members of parliament, there is an advocacy role for the local electorate, but equally um, when we sort of hear that, you know, members or candidates fight for their electorates, it kind of makes me wonder what happens when they get to parliament. Do they shout at each other to see which projects actually get up. Yeah. Well, it just, it connotates an adversarial system, doesn't it? Yeah. And it sort of, I would like to think that, you know, as a rule, projects go where there's the best business, like money goes where it follows the best business case. And there's certainly a role for local members to make sure that their um, electorates don't miss out. But um, which probably sort of led to my other sort of concern, Chris, there were some comments by the former prime minister last week where he said that, um, you know, it's better that politicians make these decisions because they understand their electorates and that public servants in Canberra don't know. And it sort of seemed to me like a bit of a dissing of the public service. Um, And if we're in the business of looking at an integrity um, regime in federal politics, then in fact, respecting the public service and that important role might be a really good place to start. Yeah, here, here. And uh, we're obviously looking to see uh, if that gets delivered on. Uh, certainly all the messaging suggests that it is. Uh, the public, the local government sector bodies have welcomed the result and taken the opportunity to remind everyone what Labor has committed to. Things like uh, improving the share of uh, Commonwealth tax revenue that flows to councils through the federal assistance grant. So we'll watch that with interest. Things like a seat at the National Cabinet for local government, whether that's one seat with uh, ALGA representing or whether it's more remains to be seen. Some are calling for every state to be represented, Steve. I'm not sure if you heard that. No, I hadn't, Chris, but wow. (laughs) But it's good that that discussion's on the table. 
That was uh, Sue Weatherly from George's River on our global executive panel last night, which we'll come back to in a moment on on trust and culture. And the a couple of other things, Labor's committed to uh, increasing the amount of money that goes into that local roads and community infrastructure plan and disaster recovery funding, etc. So I did like the way that Linda Scott came out from ALGA during the week and just very neatly reminded everyone of what Labor had said they were going to do for local government. So let's wait and see. Oh, lest we forget after the election what they actually promised, Chris. Exactly, exactly. All right, um, Steve, I don't know whether you've done any sort of analysis. I'm, I'm not sure whether any of the councillors who were running for federal election actually got over the line. I know Despy O'Connor's gone back to being a councillor at Mornington Peninsula Shire. I assume Rob Priestley will be at Greater Shepparton if he hasn't already. A few mayors in Queensland were running for election and did not get elected and have gone back to their normal roles. Are you aware of any that did actually get elected? No, I'm not, Chris. No, I, must say I was probably focused on the Victorian ones and I'm not aware of any Victorian councillors who got up. So, uh, yeah, we wait to see with the, uh, the interstate ones. Um, and, you know, well done to them for, for running the campaigns that they did. And uh, we turn our attention, obviously, to the state election. Someone very close to me said the other day, do we have to vote again this year? Gosh, democracy's a chore, Chris, isn't it? <laughs> she said to me, this is my darling wife, why can't we just have all the elections happen at once and get it out of the way? It doesn't quite work that way, but... It's well, a nice idea. It is. You could file that under red tape reduction, Chris. <laughs> yes, harmonisation. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about elections as we move into the state uh, election phase in the coming months. Um, actually, I, I had this well down the list, Steve, but while we're on elections, uh, a big development in Tasmania this week where the local government minister there has introduced legislation to make voting compulsory at local government elections in that state, their elections are coming up in September and October. It's caught the sector a bit by surprise, uh, it would seem, down there. Most are saying, good idea, but we did not know this was coming. That was actually my thought too, Chris, that I think most people would say universal franchise, compulsory voting, you know, in Australia is part of the landscape, terrific. Um, but again, it was a surprise for the sector. And I'm reminded of the interview that you did with Claire Keenan, uh, the CEO at Moira Shire, a few weeks ago. And Claire, having come down from Queensland, talked about the importance for the culture of local government, of the respect that it receives from federal and state government. And I think one of the really important elements, um, you know, in Victoria and in all states is if local government is treated like a, an adult, then will encourage behaviour that is more adult-like. Yeah, good good pick up there. I'm glad you uh, got something out of that uh, that interview. That that edition of the Local Government News Roundup is far and away the most listened to episode that we've produced uh, to date. So it seems to have struck a chord. And we'll keep an eye on what happens in Tasmania with, uh, with great interest. Let's come back closer to home. Lots of news to touch on this week. I'm going to throw a heap of stuff at you, Steve, and see if, uh, if you've got some, some governance pills of wisdoms to share. Have you been following what's happening in Yarra with the, uh, the remo removal of the gate at Alfington Grammar School, which has come to a head this week? I have, Chris. It's, uh, yeah, and, and quite interesting um, in terms of land use because it would appear that over a period of time the Alfington Grammar has... Uh, occupied what might otherwise be a disused road or some some type of land and in fact set up some gates to stop access and the council is saying um or and has said for a number of months that it wishes to provide the local community with such access and 
um, at about six o'clock one evening in the last week, uh, the gates were removed by council contractors or staff. Yeah, so a couple of points that need to be made here that haven't been picked up in some of the reporting that I've seen. The council resolved to bring this matter to a head last year and have been engaging or attempting to engage with the school for some months and has conducted community consultation, which was, they say, overwhelmingly in favour of the restoration of public access. The school had until 5pm on Tuesday of this week to remove the gate and restore that public access. They chose not to and chose from, from the statement I've seen from Yarra City Council, chose really not to engage in the, in the process more recently at all. Uh, and the council said, and I quote, uh, is incredibly disappointed that Alphington Grammar School did not do the right thing and comply with their legal requirement to remove the gate, which was effectively privatising public land. Absolutely. And, you know, there may well have been uh, a bit of a game of um, seeking an adverse possession, but I would have thought that might have prompted some legal action by the, uh, the school if they were serious. I thought the, um, the commentary from the school was somewhat um, interesting when they talked, to, you know, almost described local residents after the gate who had been removed, um, moving through the area, that that action had been somewhat provocative and... Um, I wouldn't have thought people exercising a legal right of access was provocative, Chris. No, and it's it's a, it's about access to public land, uh, which is uh, I gather behind those school uh, grounds uh, with uh, walking paths and things that have been uh, put in there that people uh, should be able to access. So I, I think that access is now available on weekends and on public uh, holidays. Well, if you were a local resident, I would have thought access to that um, pristine river frontage would be highly valued and heaven forbid that a council would act in the interest of its local residents. There's a broader issue here too that often comes up with councils in terms of you know maximising the use of public facilities that a lot of schools have you know sporting grounds and open space etc and they come to arrangements with local councils on how a community can best use those assets. One would hope that there's a more cooperative approach being brought to those issues I think there's a, yeah, there's a wider theme, Chris, that we've talked about pretty regularly about, you know, working with stakeholders. Um, but there's sometimes a need to just lay down a marker and, um, and for the council not to be, um, not to be a pushover in terms of its right of act, you know, its right to public land as it has described. So as of recording, I understand the gates come down. I'm not sure if there have been any further developments since, but we'll uh, keep an eye on that. Um, here's another example of uh, trying to maximise use of, uh, of, of public space. This has happened in Darabin, Steve, where the council has this week reached what the mayor describes as a great compromise position. There's a golf course there, Northcote Golf Course, which was used for uh, community access during the pandemic because golf was banned. And there's been a bit of an uprising from the community wanting to retain use of that space and not have it locked away for exclusive use by golfers. Isn't that an unanticipated um, outcome of COVID, Chris, that, um, that the community realised that there was this terrific um, resource available and, um, and have sought to, to pursue that? I have to say, I do have, and maybe just being an older bloke, I have a bit of sympathy for the golfers because um, access to a 12-hole public golf course is not something for the elite. It is really, um, for my mind, it gives access to golf to people who otherwise probably can't afford to join a golf club. Mm. Um, and But the, the compromise position was to, 
I think, review the hours of access, but to also convert the golf course from a 12-hole course to a nine-hole course. That That's correct. And uh, to free up, uh, forget the number, I think it was like five hectares of space for, for other community use and to investigate a curfew on golf. I thought that was interesting after 3 p.m. And, uh, and other uses for the buildings that are on that site. Yeah. And I think, look, Credit to the council for being able to work through the issue and not treating it as one that is polarising, but to find some middle ground that still allows uh, for some golf and um, also the access. And as a pretty uh, errant hitter, Chris, I can understand the public safety issues associated with the public too close to golfers. Indeed. Now, uh, there's just a couple of wicked problems that two councils in Melbourne have been uh, dealing with. This is par for the course, isn't it, in council land? Oh, these. <laughs> Boom, boom, Chris. <laughs> no irony in what you've said there. None whatsoever. You tee uh, off on the next thing now. Let's let's tee off on Moreland City Council with the industrial action that had been flagged for three days this week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Residents had been warned that their bins would not be collected due to uh, protected industrial action that's happening uh, related to enterprise bargaining negotiations that have been happening there at Moreland. Um, every day this week on on the evening before the action was due to take place, it, it had been called off for the following day. Uh, kudos to uh, the council for keeping the community uh, right up to date with regular updates on the website. The latest one as of last night uh, says that everything will proceed as normal this week, um, that their enterprise bargaining uh, negotiations have seen them come to agreement with two out of three unions, but one does not support the proposed agreement, and council staff will get to vote on the proposals shortly. Yeah, Chris, look, it will take its course. I think um, the thing about enterprise bargaining is that every few years we get a bit of disruption. And as we've spoken about previously, maybe this year there's a bit more disruption than usual uh, because uh, the issue of wages keeping pace with inflation um, has become part of the political landscape. Absolutely. That's going to put pressure on those negotiations over the next couple of years, I'm sure, if uh, as, as those EBs uh, come to uh, their expiry dates. Exactly. All right. I know some people look forward to hearing about the latest movements around the sector, and I've got a few to share with you uh, this week, Steve, and listeners and viewers. Um, this week, an interesting situation played out at Greater Dandenong, where they'd uh, publicly indicated they were considering a new contract for the CEO, John Benny, of just four months to allow for the completion of some matters, and that would mean after Mr. Benny's contract expires at the end of July, he would continue through to the end of November. Uh, Steve, this is interesting. You only need 30 seconds to watch this. If you watch the Greater Dandenong Council meeting from Monday evening, the recommendation was put to the vote. It was a 7-3 vote, so three councillors voted against it, and they moved on with the business. I thought it was interesting it was dealt with in open council in the first place, to be honest. That would be quite unusual, Chris. Um, you know, normally, and there's nothing wrong with um, dealing with those sort of things confidentially and then announcing the outcome later in a way that's been agreed. Um, so I can only presume there was a good reason. Uh, absolutely. I can only assume the same. I, I think the takeaway message here is uh, John Benny will be standing down after 16 years, uh, and that will be likely at the end of November this year. So I've added that to the list of uh, CEO movements or potential movements that we're keeping track of on the Roundup. There you go. And, and let's be clear, um, Chris, that John had made um, no secret of his intention to retire. And, you know, it seems what 
the the main takeout from this week's events is that there'll be an orderly transition. Yes, indeed, and and that was one of the things that was said in the report that uh, that recruitment and selection process will be uh, started and uh, and uh, perhaps concluded. Not sure by the time that John finishes. Uh, in other CEO developments, Kayleen Conrick uh, has resigned at Mansfield. She told me this week that it's it's just time. She's been there for two and a half years and uh, is ready to move on. She will finish in July. Uh, Charlie Bird, who was finishing in July at Alpine Shire, has, uh, has moved on early to take up a new role with Beyond Housing. So Alan Clark, who was a director at the rural city of Wangaratta, has been tapped to come in as an interim CEO there while that recruitment process takes place. So all the best to both Kayleen and Charlie. I'll tell you what too though, Chris, for any aspiring CEOs, there's a bit going on in the northeast of the state. And they would be great gigs, I think, for, for, for people who want to take their first step into, C, into a CEO position. Absolutely. And that, that was the traditional pathway, really, wasn't it, for perhaps Absolutely. second levels to, to, uh, to cut their teeth on a CEO role. So look out for those uh, two of them coming up pretty soon. Mm. And I want to congratulate, I don't know Evelyn Arnold at Southern Grampians. I don't know if you do, uh, Steve, a director there at Southern Grampians. Um, Evelyn's been appointed as the general manager, equivalent of CEO, at Greater Hume Council in New South Wales on a five-year term. Good get. Um, no, I don't know Evelyn, but congratulations on that. That's um, you know that's a, a great appointment. It is. So there you go. That's the latest uh, gossip, if you like, on uh, senior executive movements uh, around uh, the state. Now, Steve, here's one that caught my eye during the week out of Greater Bendigo, uh, where, of course, there's a lot of heritage uh, that they obviously would like to see protected. But they're running into this issue of demolition by neglect. And I think they've been hopeful that some new laws that were passed last year would help them deal with this sort of thing. Uh, Apparently not. And there's guidance coming from the state on um, some clarity for those new laws. But the, the council's received some advice to say that those laws will not stop this issue of demolition by neglect and the council would only be able to act after a successful prosecution over a demolition or partial demolition. Interesting one. Ethan, we might have to keep an eye on this and perhaps our friends at Hunt and Hunt um, speak to them subsequently. I was just reminded that I knew, Chris, a few years ago um, that the City of Moreland had dealt with a similar issue and contrary to officer advice, had resolved um, to act in a way that discouraged that sort of practice, but um, whether the whether the legislation at the moment has the teeth to actually um, be meaningful is a real question that councils will be interested in because um, it's a blight when these properties are just allowed to decline over what ends up being years or perhaps yeah. decades. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's another of those wicked problems, isn't it? And uh, thanks for the reminder on the Moreland uh, issue. That was only about a year ago and I'd forgotten about it. Let's go back into Tassie. Uh, We've been following the story of the Waratah Wynyard councillor, Darren Fairbrother, who was convicted recently on, I've been calling it indecent exposure because I didn't want to use the language that was used uh, in the actual case. Uh, Trying to be mindful of the Thank you, Chris, for your... (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, uh, he was fined, I think it was $800, placed on a sex offender register for two years. Um, he's still a councillor. Uh, there are, it, it appears this week, confirmation in the press, a number of code of conduct complaints, including one that's been brought by the state director of local government uh, for uh, falling well short of the behaviour expected of individuals holding the position of councillor. Councillor Fairbrother has yet to indicate what he plans to do after his lawyer um, said during the case that he was reviewing his position. So this one 
strangely enough, still rolls on without resolution. Yeah, and it's um, it's an interesting form of words, isn't it? The behaviour falling short of the sort of community standards or the standards expected um, really begs the question of, well, what does that mean? Yes. So, um, yeah, my jury's out on that one, Chris, if we're... Yeah, we'll have to wait and uh, see and hear more, I guess. Um, I understand if the complaint by the Director of Local Government is upheld, it could lead to a suspension for up to three months, which... Uh, appears a bit light on in the surface on the surface but we don't know all the details of course of that complaint no and i mean there's a whole sort of political overlay that goes with that about with you know would someone's reputation withstand such a suspension and what you know you know what might one do which is really a question for the councillor concerned yes Let's stay in Tassie where a, ta a former Tasmanian uh, mayor has been in court this week. We talked about this, I think, when it first came to light, Steve. The mayor had offered up her short-term accommodation, an Airbnb uh, property, to a couple of successive interim general managers with the cost picked up by the council. Um, she's being, her name is Debbie Wisby. She's being prosecuted for improper use of information and misuse of position and has pleaded not guilty to the charges. This has been in court this week. Um, this is not new, Chris. This sort of um, symptom, if you like, that I think in some issues in Queensland and uh, about 10 years ago at a Victorian uh, regional city of councillors um, renting properties in one form or another to um, council staff, which kind of raises a question around... Um, uh, profiting from the office that you hold, because in this particular case, was the councillor privy to information that wasn't available in the marketplace, even though the um, the um, defence is that it was offered at a discount rate, so there's a community benefit anyway. Um, and probably the bigger topic is um, the perceived conflict of interest where you have transactions between councillors and council staff um, does that create an environment where others might say they're so conflicted in their relationship that they can't, um, you know, they can't deal with issues in a way that's perceived to be at arm's length? The big one for me, Chris, in terms of not so much the councillors but the officers, is that most um, officer codes of conduct would talk to the importance of avoiding conflicts of interest. Yeah, and I would have thought that the prospect of entering into a rental um, with a councillor, a, a rental contract with a councillor, would almost certainly um, create the perception of a conflict of interest and ought to be avoided. Yes, I would have thought so too. So um, we'll wait for that one to play out. I think the matter comes back to court in June. As, as you say, the defence is arguing there was no financial advantage because the accommodation was offered at a reduced rate to what would normally be paid in the market. The counter argument to that is that the mayor of the day had used information that, as you say, would not have been accessible to other parties and therefore benefited by that exclusive uh, access to information. Exactly. And I go back to something that Chris, you and I have talked about quite often, that there are times, even if the mayor is found not guilty, there are times where um, conduct issues are not necessarily criminal to deserve attention. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of other interstate issues. Uh, a councillor on the Gold Coast has defended um, his uh, appearance in a promotional video, which was in return for $1,500 worth of free swimming lessons. And the council has uh, this week 
voted. This is a curious thing that happens in Queensland where the council votes on whether a particular councillor uh, can participate in a vote or not due to a perceived conflict of interest. And they decided that he did have a conflict of interest and shouldn't participate in the vote. Isn't that an interesting thing that the council gets to vote and make that decision? Yes. Um, which would solve some problems and create others, I'd imagine, Chris. I think you're right. Because heaven forbid that there would be any element of politics in those decisions. Um, the other one for me, for the councillor concerned, is or for any councillor being asked to do something like that, um, would you be asked to do that if you were not a councillor? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the right question, isn't it? Of course. It's one of them, Chris. There might be a few other good questions. Yeah, 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 sure. But um, that's the one for me. So his declaration showed that he'd received $1,500 worth of free swimming lessons for his children, by the way, not for him, in return for a promotional video and other promotional activity for the company that operates the council-owned aquatic centre. So there's quite a few elements oh, to be unpacked. There's a few boundaries being blurred there, Chris. Yeah. All right, uh, just to note that one and to note that in uh, New South Wales this week, the um, uh, I'm just going to call it ICAC. I can't remember what that stands for now. Independent Independent Commission Against Corruption. Commission yes. Against Corruption have announced that they are investigating allegations of corruption against former Georges River and Hurstville City councillors. We had a Georges River executive on our panel last night who said, you know, we've sort of known this has been coming for some time. It's been one of those things that's been hanging over heads and I guess they want to see some resolution to it sooner rather than later. Yeah, you'd imagine there's a few um, witnesses and other parties who have had that phone call that says, um, we're going to talk to you about some things, but you're not allowed to talk about it because if you do, there's a consequence. Yes. And of course, at the same time, the City of Canada Bay Mayor is subject to, and a former general manager, I think, uh, subject to an inquiry by ICAC. So, there's a bit going on in terms of integrity within uh, local government in New South Wales, which uh, would be of concern to many. Yeah, and there's sort of some interesting um, byplay, probably going back a couple of weeks, where um, the IBAC commissioner in Victoria, Robert Redlick, and the CEO, Marlo Baraguanath, appeared before a state government committee. And one of the issues um, for the committee was the well-being of um, witnesses um, in these matters. And there's a real public interest test of weighing up the public benefit of, um, you know, exposing what has occurred in these matters versus the well-being of those involved. And um, I know I did hear Mr. Redlick say that um, we need, kind of need to be mindful that any time anyone is involved in a legal matter, it will inevitably be stressful. Um, yes. And yes. so uh, I think there's a real public interest test that um, deserves an airing, Chris. And while we're on um, behaviour, which it's been a loose thread through most of what we've talked about today, uh, interesting revelations in South Australia in the past week from Southern Mallee Council, which I think is just over the border with, uh, with Victoria, where it's been revealed that more than $60,000 in this financial year has been spent on councillor conduct and governance matters, which has blown the budget by $50,000 or thereabouts. All the matters have been dealt with pretty much all of them have been dealt with in confidence, understandably, but the mayor has publicly said that elected members are discussing their behaviour and governance issues to try and bring down that legal spending. Yeah, and <laughs> I would imagine, Chris, in every jurisdiction, there is some sort of legislation that talks about good governance and really invites council groups to consider what does good governance look like? Yeah, And often, you know, being humans, 
people will get angry or will cross the line, but have a rationalisation for it because their community, you know, would expect them to or whatever it happens to be. But there's a cost. And I think people are sometimes surprised that when you get into investigations and arbitrations and so on, that there are quite significant legal costs that I'm not sure the community's all that thrilled about. No, I'm sure that's right. Um, Steve, sorry, I just got distracted there because I've just had an alert. So this is this is uh, true breaking news as we're recording, thanks to one of my sources. Uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the departure of the CEO at Campaspe Shire. Declan Moore had moved on. Uh, as of this morning, we can say that Tim Tamlin, who uh, was most recently the interim CEO at the City of Kingston, has been appointed as the acting chief executive officer starting next Monday at Campaspe. So congratulations to Tim. Wow. Yeah, and Tim will be well equipped to uh, to perform that role at Campaspe. So well done to him and well done to Campaspe. Absolutely. There you go. Breaking news hot off the press here on the governance update. Doesn't change my rules, Chris, that I don't like issues without notice, but thank you for doing that. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to finish on something that caught my eye out of Strathbogie Shire this week, unless you've got something, of course, you want to finish I on. Think, let's talk about Strathbogie. Um, Strathbogie Shire has uh, updated their logo. Now, th this is this might seem inconsequential, but I know that councils often grapple with this issue, whether the logo is still fit for purpose. It sends a message about the council's brand and its connection with the community and elements of the community, etc. but it can be a very costly exercised and that often stops the process before it gets too far. So Chris how did they avoid the cost? They've developed a, a new logo in-house it's very nice it uh, features uh, elements that represent the rivers and the ranges of the of the Shire so they've they've done it at a low on a, on a low cost um, uh, in a low cost way I should say and I think they're to be commended I think it looks very very nice we'll put it up on the screen so you can see for yourself. I haven't seen it um, previously Chris and when you put it up on the screen i still won't be able to say it but i just think it does send a really strong message um for the culture at camp has to be of a really can-do organization that uh that is capable and that should be treasured absolutely so well done to them all you have to do is go to uh, strathbogie.vic.gov.au because you can see it on the uh, on the front page of their website all righty uh steve that's it from me anything else from you before we wrap up chris i think our work is done for the week Excellent. Thank you. Always good to talk. I hope you have a great one. Now, you did want to tell us about an event that was coming up, I thought, from uh, from the VLGA perspective on having better disagreements as part of teams. 7th of June, Chris, an online event, just an hour and a half. Um, I think 11.30 to 1 o'clock. Details are on the VLGA website. And I'll be in conversation with Melissa Scadden from Justicia Lawyers and Consultants, who is a rather expert dispute resolver. And we'll just be talking about good disagreements and the factors in teams that, you know, help organisations to get through those things. Sounds like a, uh, a must-see, must-do event. So that's on the 17th of June. Easy access, Chris. So on the events page of the VLJ website. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. Have a great week and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Steve Cooper, Chief of Staff at the VLGA. This has been the weekly governance update and we thank our sponsors Hunt and Hunt Lawyers for their support as always in bringing the program to you and we'll be back with you again next week. Bye for now.